this is our first Sunday in Advent, and if you come from no church background or a church background that maybe doesn't celebrate this, just tell you a little bit about what that is. Advent is the Latin word for arrival or coming. Traditionally, what the church has done is the five weeks leading up to Christmas, they, they celebrate it each week with, with special readings and just a remembrance of what Jesus uh, has come to do and what he is coming to do. So, so that's what we're celebrating today. And, and the, the way that we're doing this is we're continuing on in our series that we've been in for some time called Manifesto, uh, where we're walking through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and for these five weeks, we're going to be focusing on the Lord's Prayer, uh, which was preached from Matthew 6. And let's read the, the scripture that we'll be looking at today and his word. The scriptures uh, say this to us this morning. Matthew 6, 5 through 9. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We have access to our Father in heaven through the work of Jesus. And and prayer is what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. Prayer is the language of the incarnation that we have. With Jesus, the incarnation that he has has come and he has lived among us to give us access to our Father in heaven. But but here's here's the issue. How many times do we pray as those that don't have access? Like we have to try and convince God of something that he's already given us. Do you find yourself, uh, like me sometimes, only praying when you're in crisis? you know, you, you've tried everything, but finally uh, you decide to pray. And it, and it reveals that we, we, we view prayer as this kind of utilitarian tool uh, in which we ask for God for something and we don't think He'll actually do it. Prayer, prayer is more than that. Prayer is the language of the incarnation. So as we, as we journey through this prayer today, the beginning of it, I, I want to invite you to hook yourselves into this truth. Here's the big idea that we're going after today. When we pray, the big idea is this, we pray from standing, not for standing with our Father in heaven. Let me say that again. When we pray, we pray from standing, from a position with God, not for a position with God. So this standing with God is about growing in intimacy by seeing God as Father. It's about that, and and we get that well. But it's also about deliverance. Have you ever noticed how the Lord's prayer how, how it ends, how, how God calls us, how Jesus calls us to pray toward the end of that prayer. He calls us to pray for deliverance. Now, we're going to be looking at this deeper in just a few minutes, but deliverance is something that God's people have always been praying for. And deliverance, church, is only found through our Father in heaven. It's only found through Him. So I want to give you the outline of where we're headed today. It's this right here. Kind of, kind of three things that have to do with sonship. And sonship is the word that I'm using to describe what it means to belong to God as children of God. It, it encompasses to be a son or a daughter of God. So, so here's the three things I want to talk about today. The promise of sonship, 
the threat of sonship and the mystery of sonship. So let's dig in together. The promise of sonship. The reality is this, is that we have access to our Father in heaven. Our, Our access, church, is not based on how well we have prayed, how well we have lived, how well we have loved, but it is based on how well Jesus has lived, how well Jesus has loved, and how much Jesus has done for us. He has the keys to unlock our access to our Father in heaven. So my question to you this morning is this, do you, do you feel far from God this morning? Maybe you are in here and you're, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and frankly you just kind of showed up because somebody drug you along or they invited you, or it, it's, it's around the holiday season so you're a little more likely to stumble in the doors of a church. You feel far from God. Is that you this morning? Or maybe you've believed in Jesus for a long time and, and uh, <clears throat> you still feel far from God this morning. You feel, feel like a distant relative at a Thanksgiving feast when it comes to your relationship uh, with, with God. That, that, that feeling's like a, like a canyon between what he's declared to be true, but then what you experience. It's like, it's like two advents. It's like God has come, but he's yet to come. That we already have his promises, but we have not yet experienced his promises. You see, those, that canyon in between, I, I would suggest to you, is, is, is the place where prayer thrives and where our relationship with God deepens. If you're like me, you forget these promises about access with God nearly every day. And the good thing about our Father in Heaven is that He knows this about us, according to Matthew 6. He already knows this. So let's flip over to Hebrews 4. And I want to give you a promise that, you, that, that hopefully... <laughs> will be ingrained in us. Uh, maybe it already is in you. Maybe it's one of those verses that, that you should kind of maybe write on a note card and leave it in a place where you could see it often because it's that good of a promise. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I say this. Since then we have a, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect who is tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is a prayer about access that we have. So, Jesus is a great high priest. So the high priest in Jewish culture was a mediator for God's people. He would enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year, into the place where the actual presence of God was. The Scripture said that Jesus functions to us like a high priest. He he has mediated a relationship with God for us. In fact, you know, I was asking my kids this week, I said, where do you think Jesus is right now? It's kind of a trick question. They're like, oh, he's kind of living in my heart, I think, through the Holy Spirit. That's true. But the Scriptures also say he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You know what he's doing. He's interceding for us. He's representing us to our Father in heaven for all eternity. He is unlocking the access that we have to our Father in heaven. And because of that, we can barge straight into our Father's office when he is on national tv more so than that we have more access 
We have so much access to God, yet the enemy convinces us that we have so little access to God. He does this often. The Scriptures goes on to say that, that Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He's, he's able to do that. Let me ask you this. Have you, have you ever been... Um, have you ever had someone try to sympathize with you uh, through something that you've went through and they really couldn't, but they tried really hard? You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had one of those? I was at Home Depot with my kids. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is funny to lighten it up a little bit here. Um, I was at Home Depot with my kids about four, um, four or five months ago, and when I was at Home Depot, we were getting some lumber. I had all four of the kids with me, and we were checking out at the line. And, uh, you know, the kids were... Let me say this. Have you ever noticed how strategic the marketing is around the counters? You ever noticed that? The gum, you know, the, the candy, the drinks. I mean, the kids want everything when we get to the counter. And so they're kind of, you know, going after it. And I just kind of let them go after it within reason because it's the store's fault for doing this, right? It's not my fault, you know. <laughs> and so we're checking out and, and the lady goes, oh, man, isn't it so hard to just get out with four kids and, and, and to kind of... Uh, you know, go to the store and do things. She goes, I know exactly what that's like. I have three dogs. <laughs> and I'm thinking in my mind, did this really just come out of this lady's mouth? Did that happen? I mean, am I in a different world right now? And let, let me throw this disclaimer, disclaimer out. I like dogs. I just don't like having my own dogs, okay? I like your dogs. And my kids like your dogs as well. So, uh, so anyway, she, she was trying so hard. She was a sweet lady. She was trying so hard to, to, to sympathize with the situation. Um, but there was uh, quite a chasm there. We, we don't have a high priest that's like that. In fact, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize uh, with us even more so than we think that he can. And in every way, he has been tempted. Guys, he, he was face to face with the devil in the, in the, in the wilderness, in the desert. In, in the, uh, I think it's Luke chapter somewhere 1 through 4, Matthew 1 through 4, when, he is, when he's, he is tempted by the devil face-to-face when he's in the wilderness fasting for 40 days. And yet he doesn't sin. He's, he knows what you struggle with. He, he knows how weak you are because he's felt the same weakness. He knows how much unbelief exists in you. And these are the things that keep us from accessing our Father in heaven. The greatest lie that the devil tells us is that we don't have access. That we don't have a Father that we can barge into His office door. That we, that we can't come before Him with confidence. That, that we come to Him and we try to convince Him of things that He's already said are true for us. We try to convince Him to love us. We try to show Him the things that we've done for Him that it might earn us some merit in His sight. We already have access, church. We just have to step into it. And that's the hardest thing that we do, and that's why we struggle to pray. So this series is not going to be about a formula for the perfect prayer life, like we need another one of those, right? We don't need that. What we need is to actually be convinced that we can approach our Father in Heaven with confidence. And that He loves us. And not only that, that we can be honest with Him. Because as Matthew 6 says, He already knows what we need before we ask. We don't have to convince Him. We don't have to butter Him up. We can be honest. He, God can handle your honesty more than you can give it to Him. So sometimes our prayers are very honest and they're, 
in the closet when we're praying, they're so, they're so honest that we're, we're grateful that no one else is listening. Because we sound like people that don't believe. It's better to confess that and say that to your Father in Heaven than it is to keep it by yourself. Because the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing us back to center whenever we come before our Father just as we are. So let me ask you this. Do you have access this morning? Do you, do you feel like you have access this morning? Do you take advantage of the access that you have to your Father in Heaven? Because the blood of Jesus is what's bought it for you. Nothing else. It's not how well you knocked it out of the park last week or, or how well you're going to knock it out of the park this week. Jeff, standing. We pray from a place of standing, not for a place of standing. Now there's a threat. The second point I want to make is this. There's a threat to our sonship in, in God. There's a threat to, that the enemy loves to use to try to convince us and try to, try to give us cheap replacements for actual access to God. So the Lord's Prayer, if you look in Matthew 6, it starts out by calling us to pray. He says, so then pray like this, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's kind of the first area that we're looking at today, this prayer. And this prayer, I'll say this, is, is a model for us. Not that it's supposed to be this rote prayer that we rehearse, but it's good to know it because it, it captures the essence of the kingdom. Because if you're anything like me, I always jump straight to daily bread. It's like, hey God, give me that daily bread. That's what I jump to. I don't pray for the kingdom. I don't pray for the forgiveness of sins. I don't pray to my Father in heaven. And when I don't pray to my Father in heaven, my whole prayer is off kilter. Because it can't be centered if I'm not seeing myself as a son when I approach my Father in heaven. So why is it so crucial that God actually be our Father? Because if God isn't our Father, then we're, we're, we're insecure when we're praying. We're unsecured. So because we are all, we're all prone to trust in a counterfeit adoption, and, and, and theologically speaking, this word adoption encompasses what it looks like for us to move from, from slaves and orphans to sons and daughters of God. And this is what, what, what God has done for us. And so we now have access to call on a, a common Father that we have in Jesus. And so we pray to him collectively, our Father in heaven. We, we pray to him in that way. And, and when that promise or circumstance falls through that we are tempted to trust, we still have a Father in heaven. What the Lord's Prayer teaches us to do is to, to lean into our relationship with God first instead of after everything falls through. Because you have a confidence to approach him in a beautiful way when we do that. So what I want to do now is I want to look at the, a little bit of the story of Moses as we think about this idea of maybe a, what a counterfeit adoption might look like. An adoption that doesn't come through on its promise, that gives the appearance of freedom without the power of freedom. So, so Moses' life uh, is a picture of, of redemption, uh, is, a, is a picture of rescue, it's a picture of advent. Um, because God came to Moses when he blew it. So, so if, you're, if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, uh, when Moses was a baby, uh, the Hebrews were enslaved to the Egyptian people in Egypt, uh, and there was an edict uh, that every little Hebrew boy that was born should be thrown into the river. They should be sacrificed. 
They should be done away with. The Pharaoh was so insecure that the Hebrews might overtake uh, his nation. And so, um, so the Lord uh, makes a plan to rescue Moses from his sin. So, so two Hebrews conceive a child, a boy, and, and, uh, and they're troubled about this Edom because they're about to lose their boy, their baby boy, the, the pride of, and joy of their, their lives. And so what do they do? They place him by the river, but not in the river, in hopes that he might be adopted by an Egyptian family that might care for him. Now, obviously, it wasn't a best-case scenario. They wanted to keep him on their own. But more than that, they wanted to keep him alive. And friends, this is the guy that God uses to deliver his people out of bondage to the Egyptians. This is the guy. So so what goes on after this? Uh, Lo and behold, the daughter of the Pharaoh... um, the Pharaoh's the guy that made the, the edict in a place of fear, uh, picks up the baby and, 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 and she keeps the baby for herself. Now Moses grows up, uh, fast forward here, Moses grows up in a, as an adopted Hebrew uh, in the land of Pharaoh. And, and he's a stranger to Egypt, yet somehow he's been protected by God through this adoption that he's had into this royal Egyptian uh, family. And so one day, his, his adoption into this into this um, Egyptian family and his, his, uh, his, his real identity as a son of God, as a Hebrew son of God, is put to the test. It's put to the test by this situation where he sees a Hebrew being beaten unjustly by an Egyptian. And so Moses, he just snaps. He just snaps. Moses is one of these guys that we couldn't sign off on to work in our children's ministry. I just want to say that, all right? He snaps and he murders this guy. He just blows a gasket. And then in that moment, he hides after he does it. And the next day, someone sees him and, and they say to him, hey, aren't you the guy that, that killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses, I envision him, he begins to backpedal and kind of look over his shoulder. And then in the next few days, he runs and he heads for the wilderness for 40 years. He runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs. And you know what God does? He does the same thing with Moses as he does when you run. He meets him. He meets him in the, in the, in the form of this burning bush. And he invites Moses back into his presence. He invites Moses back into the story of redemption. And he tells Moses that he's going to use him to free the people of God. And Moses makes up all of these excuses from from, from like, hey, well, I, I can't do this. I'm the guy that murdered a guy. You know, I'm out here in the wilderness hiding from the Egyptians. And he makes up these other kind of excuses like, hey, I can't really speak that well. I stutter a little bit. And God says, okay, fine. I'll send Aaron with you. It's no, it's no big deal. Uh, he makes up these excuses and God keeps meeting him. That's what you have to remember. When you run from God, God meets us in the midst of that. That's what Advent's all about, is God meeting us in our running. And do you know what God keeps on doing? He keeps meeting us in our running, but we have to see Him as our Father. Exodus 4, 22-23 says this. This is when God meets him, and He calls him to join His mission to deliver His people. He says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Mm. 
For I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we have this language, even in Exodus, of God as our Father and His children as His prized possession. God is not reckless and careless in His redemption and His salvation. He is sovereign and in control. He is mighty and He's loving. So you see right here, this is a foretaste, a promise of what God has come to do. He's coming to give us hope through a new way of relating to Him. We're no longer sojourners. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons. And that changes everything about how you relate to God. Many of us pray as slaves instead of sons. We pray as strangers instead of sons. We pray as those who have no access. We've been locked out. when We've been given full access. But this, this adoption from Moses into this Egyptian family was only an appearance. It was only a glimmer of what, what access could have looked like. It was a counterfeit adoption. It wasn't an adoption that Moses could trust. It could save him from being murdered in the river, but it could not save him from his sin. And we, we see that. We see that when Moses runs to the wilderness. Why does he run? Because his life is at stake. His identity as an Egyptian would no longer cover the sin that he had committed. It was a counterfeit adoption. It couldn't be trusted. And this is why the Scriptures say this in Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to trust in his adoption as an Egyptian. He couldn't put his trust there. It was no good. It couldn't handle the weight of sin. It couldn't lead him into eternity. It couldn't give him final hope. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The adoption of Moses was the plan of God, but it can never save him from his bondage to sin. To trust in his identity as an Egyptian would have been a counterfeit promise. It couldn't have been trusted. He couldn't lean the full weight of his life into it. And this is why we see Moses abandon his identity when he needs rescue. So my question to you is this. Why am I sharing this with you? We are prone to trust in counterfeit identities. Whether it be the nation that we live in, America. I mean, if we look at world history, Every great nation comes to an end at some time. I don't, I don't know, I'm not trying to be a prophet here on that, but, but to, to trust in our identity as an American when we see the news and say, oh, that would never happen here, is a counterfeit promise. You can't trust it. It's a counterfeit adoption. To trust in the money that you have in the bank is a counterfeit adoption. It will never give you power over sin. To trust in your spouse or your significant other or your friends for joy in life is a counterfeit Adoption. Job knew this better than anyone. Everything was taken away. What is it for you that you're tempted to lean into as a counterfeit adoption to give you the appearance of freedom without the actual power and presence of freedom? What, what is it for you? You know, I was on, um, 
I was on a really long flight from Australia, and uh, I was sitting next uh, to this mate, uh, this Aussie, and uh, he had just, he was 26, he had just gotten a job uh, at the coal mining, at the coal mines in uh, northern Queensland in, uh, in Australia, and he was, he was telling me, like, one of, the, one of the first things he wanted to tell me about was how big his salary was. He's like, yeah, man, I'm starting out at 160, 160,000. I'm like, dude, are they hiring? It's the first thing I said. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, no, in all seriousness, we began to talk, and, and I began to see, and this is just a picture of what it could be like. I began to see um, kind of his wheels spinning, because I asked him a couple questions. He was telling me about all of his plans, about how he was going to save up and buy this house and this car, and he was finally going to get married, and and all these things were going to kind of fall into place for him. And I asked him this question. I said, so what are you going to do when the money's not enough? Let's say you become a supervisor. You make 250 What are you going to do when that's not enough for you? And he sat there and he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I don't know. Now, now you know, most, most Australians um, are, are, are more, um, you know, atheistic or, or, or don't follow God, uh, it's like paradise there. I mean, it would be really easy to not follow God because you kind of have everything that you want there. And I said, hey man, I, I know you didn't plan sit on sitting next to a pastor for this really long flight. Um, <laughs> he goes, man, I would have I asked you to stop if I wasn't interested. So for him, it was it, the question is in his mind on what do I do when it's not enough? So whatever it is for you, what do you do when it's not enough? Because there will be a point in your life when it is not enough anymore. It's not enough to give you joy. It's not enough to give you happiness. It's not enough to give you eternity. What will you do in those moments? Now, most of us, you know, we find ourselves frustrated with prayer. Um, and, you know, if I were to ask you, if I were to do a survey and say, how many of you think that you pray enough? None of you would say, I think I do. If I ask you, you know, any other diagnostic question about your prayer life, you would feel utterly defeated, just like I would. That's not the purpose of this sermon series at all. Most of us find ourselves frustrated with our prayer life and our communion with God because our prayer life is a reflection of how well we commune uh, with God. And, and it seems, uh, for, for me, it seems like my prayers are too rooted in, counter, in my counterfeit relationships with different things and stuff. And when it comes to prayer, I think all of us have a temptation to lapse back into the cheap cliches that marked our years of alienation from God. When we're not communing vibrantly with our Father in heaven, and I'm not talking about you're knocking it on the park with your prayer list. I mean, if your prayer list, guys, is keeping you from praying because you feel so condemned, throw the thing away. I'm not kidding. I think God would much rather us actually commune with him than make it through a list. I think we, we, we lapse so often back into the seasons of our life when we were alienated from God and we let those thoughts and those ideas about ourselves narrate how we actually commune with God. And so we lapse back into those cheap cliches. But there's one thing that teaches you to pray more than anything else. Only one thing. It's this, desperation. So the question to ask yourself if you are frustrated with how well you're communing with God this morning is this, how desperate am I for God? And a dangerous prayer to pray in light of that is, God, make me desperate. It's a dangerous prayer, but it's a rewarding prayer that God has for us. Are you, are you desperate for God's power and His presence this morning? Do you want it more than anything else? Because 
once you have that in place, you don't have to worry about how often you pray. It's just what comes out of your relationship with Him. Lastly, I want to talk about the mystery of, of sonship. Here's what I've realized, is that communion with God deepens through prayer. Um, <clears throat> we love a good mystery, a good story, um, as long as it's not a mystery in our own lives, right? <laughs> we, we love the mystery that someone else is experiencing or the movie or the novel or whatever it would be, but when it comes to mystery in our lives, it drives us nuts because we want to know what God is up to, what God is doing. Uh, Tom Wright says this in his book about the Lord's Prayer. He says this, whenever we pray, this is what we're coming to do, to pursue the mystery. I want to let that sit for a second. When you come to pray, what you're doing is you're pursuing the mystery. To listen and respond to the voice that we thought we just heard. To follow the light which beckons around the next corner. To lay a hold of the love of God which has somehow already laid hold of us. So we find ourselves this morning in the midst of a mystery. On one side, we have all of these truths that are supposed to be changing our life that we know about God. On the other side, we have all of this mystery, all this pain, all this agony. And we wonder where God is. And we, we, we tend to look, we say, how long, God? How long can I wait? How long is it going to be? And do you come and you make all things new? And we live in between. In, in between these two advents that God has already come and he's given us these promises, but they haven't yet worked themselves into the world and in our own lives. And that's where prayer helps us to enter into the mystery. This is why Jesus, when he, when, he, when, he, when he goes on to teach his disciples how to pray, he says, you know, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for God's will to come and bear upon our lives. And the, the only way to stay at peace with God is to participate in the redemption and renewal of the world through prayer. That, that's how we stay at peace with God. When we see Him moving in every little nick and cranny of our lives whenever we pray and we say, God, come and make this world new. That, that we hold on to that promise in Revelation where where, where, where Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. He doesn't say he's going to make all new things, but he says he's going to make all things new, which means that he's pleased to enter into the mess of our stories and our lives and the mess of our world to show himself as glorious and faithful in our midst. That's what Jesus has come to do. So in one hand, we hold the mess of our lives. In the other hand, we hold the beauty of His kingdom, and we pray for God to make the two one. That's what it looks like to enter into the mystery uh, through prayer. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 8. He says this, verses 22 through 27. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Doesn't he in two verses explain what we feel every day right there? We groan. We wait. Whether it's an illness that you have, it's just plaguing your life. You're just not the same anymore. Whether it's a busted relationship, a failed marriage, 
a kid that has run off the rails, whatever it is, you wake up and you feel it every morning. The Apostle Paul is leading us and showing us that this groaning, this longing is part of our redemption. That He somehow mysteriously is redeeming us as we look to God to fix us together. And if we didn't feel the pain, we couldn't experience the redemption. If we, if we, if we didn't feel the power of alienation, we couldn't experience the power of unity. This is what he's saying. He goes on to say this, for, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. So he's saying it has to be a mystery or it wouldn't be hope. There has to be some question marks or you would be God. We've got to learn to settle our souls in the, the presence of his hands and the power of his spirit in the middle of the mystery. He goes on to say, for who hopes for, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Waiting, Advent, He's coming. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have Jesus as this great high priest who knows everything we've experienced. Well, He's, he's given us this deposit, this promise, this guarantee who's this Holy Spirit that's with us. This is when He says in Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. He's imparted to us a gift, the Holy Spirit which teaches us to wait in the mystery, but to long for heaven in the same breath. And he says, here's what the Spirit does. Here's how it helps you in your weakness. He says for this, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. How many times have you sat down to pray and you just got nothing? Is it just me? Anybody else? You sat down to pray and you got nothing. You want to have this really rich, rewarding experience and you got nothing. I heard a pastor one, one time talk about, you know, anybody ever fell asleep praying before? Is that just me? That's just me too, okay. Just checking. Uh, I can tell by the looks on some of your faces that you're all like, that's me, yeah. He said this, he said, hey, look, now you, you fall asleep and you pray and you think that God is what? He's mad at you, right? Like, and you can't even stay up for three hours like with, with his disciples, Jesus' disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says this, how many times has a baby fallen asleep in your arms? And you've been mad at that baby for falling asleep. It's the same way with God. If we are his children and, and he holds us in his arms, why would he be mad at you as you pursue him? Guys, prayer is hard work. Because we're living in the middle of the mystery. And we can't see it, but we hope because we cling on to these promises that we hook ourselves into. And we pray and it's work. If your prayer doesn't feel like work, you're probably not praying. We're grinding to stay in fellowship with our Father in heaven. And sometimes we do better, sometimes we do worse. He goes on to say this in Romans chapter 8. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So when you don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. For groanings too deep to wor for words. Your, your language can't even express the groanings of creation. The groanings of your soul. But the Holy Spirit is accessing the power of your Father in heaven through the work of His Spirit in your life. We just got to go to Him. And He intercedes for us. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
The Holy Spirit alive inside of you is more eager to pray than you are. And that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful promise. I love what Richard Sibb says. He says this, God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. I think that's how he translates Romans 8. How he translates uh, Romans 8. God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. So when you, when you sit down to pray to commune with your Father in heaven and you feel like you're all over the map, George Mueller felt the same way. He used to say it would take him 30 minutes to settle down in prayer. And if you're anything like me, you're like, 30 minutes? I mean, that's all I gave for prayer, you know? God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. I want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to journey alongside one another through this Advent season as we stumble around in the darkness together, catching a glimmer of light and longing for more of it in our hearts. Can we do that together this Advent season, church? Can we take all the expectations that we have for ourselves off? And can we live as those who have access to our Father in heaven because Jesus has given us that forever? Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we, we, we come to you because we have access, not because we've earned access, but because you've given us access. You've given us yourself. You, you Father, you, you didn't withhold your firstborn son but you sent Him so that we could be the firstborn of many sons and daughters. We could be the first fruits of Your Spirit as the Scripture says. So God, I just ask that You would comfort us this morning as we pray to our Father in Heaven who loves us dearly. God, may we grow in intimacy with You. May we see You as a, as a, as a Father who loves His Son, as a Father who loves His daughter. And God, may that change us. God, I pray that You would help us to pray for deliverance of the right things, from the right things. Sometimes the circumstances that we pray to be released from are the things that show us who our Father in Heaven actually is. God, center us this morning. Center us this season to see You as our Father in Heaven. And us as Your children in whom You're well pleased. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.